Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 6 The Demons and the Philosophers Part 3 It is perhaps the proof of a certain superficiality and even insincerity about the popular polytheism that men could be philosophers and even skeptics without disturbing it. These thinkers could move the foundations of the world without altering even the outline of that colored cloud that hung above it in the air. For the thinkers did move the foundations of the world, even when a curious compromise seemed to prevent them from moving the foundations of the city. The two great philosophers of antiquity do indeed appear to us as defenders of sane and even of sacred ideas. Their maxims often read like the answers to skeptical questions too completely answered to be always recorded. Aristotle annihilated a hundred anarchists and nature-worshipping cranks by the fundamental statement that man is a political animal. Plato, in some sense, anticipated the Catholic realism, as attacked by the heretical nominalism, by insisting on the equally fundamental fact that ideas are realities that ideas exist just as men exist. Plato, however, seemed sometimes almost to fancy that ideas exist as men do not exist, or that the men need hardly be considered where they conflict with the ideas. He had something of the social sentiment that we call Fabian in his ideal of fitting the citizen to the city, like an imaginary head to an ideal hat. And great and glorious as he remains, he has been the father of all faddists. Aristotle anticipated more fully the sacramental sanity that was to combine the body and the soul of things, for he considered the nature of men as well as the nature of morals, and looked to the eyes as well as to the light. But though these great men were in that sense constructive and conservative, they belonged to a world where thought was free to the point of being fanciful. Many other great intellects did indeed follow them, some exalting an abstract vision of virtue, others following more rationalistically the necessity of the human pursuit of happiness. The former had the name of Stoics, and their name has passed into a proverb for what is indeed one of the main moral ideals of mankind, that of strengthening the mind itself, until it is a texture to resist calamity or even pain. But it is admitted that a great number of the philosophers degenerated into what we still call sophists. They became a sort of professional skeptics who went about asking uncomfortable questions and were handsomely paid for making themselves a nuisance to normal people. It was perhaps an accidental resemblance to such questioning quacks that was responsible for the unpopularity of the great Socrates, whose death might seem to contradict the suggestion of the permanent truce between the philosophers and the gods. But Socrates did not die as a monotheist who denounced polytheism, certainly not as a prophet who denounced idols. It is clear to anyone reading between the lines that there was some notion, right or wrong, of a purely personal influence affecting morals and perhaps politics. The general compromise remained. Whether it was that the Greeks thought their myths a joke, or that they thought their theories a joke. 
there was never any collision in which one really destroyed the other, and there was never any combination in which one was really reconciled with the other. They certainly did not work together. If anything, the philosopher was a rival of the priest. But both seemed to have accepted a sort of separation of functions and remained parts of the same social system. Another important tradition descends from Pythagoras, who is significant because he stands nearest to the Oriental mystics who must be considered in their turn. He taught a sort of mysticism of mathematics, that number is the ultimate reality. But he also seems to have taught the transmigration of souls, like the Brahmins, and to have left to his followers certain traditional tricks of vegetarianism and water drinking very common among the Eastern sages, especially those who figure in fashionable drawing rooms, like those of the later Roman Empire. But in passing to Eastern sages, and the somewhat different atmosphere of the East, we may approach a rather important truth by another path. One of the great philosophers said that it would be well if philosophers were kings, or kings were philosophers. He spoke as of something too good to be true, but as a matter of fact, it not unfrequently was true. A certain type, perhaps too little noticed in history, may really be called the royal philosopher. To begin with, apart from actual royalty, it did occasionally become possible for the sage, though he was not what we call a religious founder, to be something like a political founder. And the great example of this, one of the very greatest in the world, will with the thought of it carry us thousands of miles across the vast spaces of Asia to that very wonderful, and in some ways, that very wise world of ideas and institutions, which we dismiss somewhat cheaply when we talk of China. Men have served many very strange gods, and trusted themselves loyally to many ideals and even idols. China is a society that has really chosen to believe in intellect. It has taken intellect seriously, and it may be that it stands alone in the world. From a very early age, it faced the dilemma of the king and the philosopher by actually appointing a philosopher to advise the king. It made a public institution out of a private individual who had nothing in the world to do but to be intellectual. It had, and has, of course, many other things on the same pattern. It creates all ranks and privileges by public examination. It has nothing that we call an aristocracy. It is a democracy dominated by an intelligentsia. But the point here is that it had philosophers to advise kings, and one of those philosophers must have been a great philosopher and a great statesman. Confucius was not a religious founder, or even a religious teacher, possibly not even a religious man. He was not an atheist. He was apparently what we call an agnostic. But the really vital point is that it is utterly irrelevant to talk about his religion at all. It is like talking of theology as the first thing in the story of how Roland Hill established the postal system, or Baden-Powell organized the Boy Scouts. Confucius was not there to bring a message from heaven to humanity, but to organize China, and he must have organized it exceedingly well. It follows that he dealt much with morals, but he bound them up strictly with manners. The peculiarity of his scheme, and of his country, in which it contrasts with its great pendant, the system of Christendom, is that he insisted on perpetuating an external life with all its forms that outward continuity might preserve internal peace. Anyone who knows how much habit has to do with health, of mind as well as body, 
will see the truth in his idea. But he will also see that the ancestor worship and the reverence for the sacred emperor were habits and not creeds. It is unfair to the great Confucius to say he was a religious founder. It is even unfair to him to say he was not a religious founder. It is as unfair as going out of one's way to say that Jeremy Bentham was not a Christian martyr. But there is a class of most interesting cases in which philosophers were kings, and not merely the friends of kings. The combination is not accidental. It has a great deal to do with this rather elusive question of the function of the philosopher. It contains in it some hints of why philosophy and mythology seldom came to an open rupture. It was not only because there was something a little frivolous about the mythology. It was also because there was something a little supercilious about the philosopher. He despised the myths, but he also despised the mob, and thought they suited each other. The pagan philosopher was seldom a man of the people, at any rate in spirit. He was seldom a democrat, and often a bitter critic of democracy. He had about him an air of aristocratic and humane leisure, and his part was most easily played by men who happened to be in such a position. It was very easy and natural for a prince or a prominent person to play at being as philosophical as Hamlet or Theseus in the Midsummer Night's Dream, and from very early ages we find ourselves in the presence of these princely intellectuals. In fact, we find one of them in the very first recorded ages of the world, sitting on that primeval throne that looked over ancient Egypt. The most intense interest of the incident of Akhenaten, commonly called the heretic Pharaoh, lies in the fact that he was the one example, at any rate before Christian times, of one of these royal philosophers who set himself to fight popular mythology in the name of private philosophy. Most of them assumed the attitude of Marcus Aurelius, who is, in many ways, the model of this sort of monarch and sage. Marcus Aurelius has been blamed for tolerating the pagan amphitheater or the Christian martyrdoms, but it was characteristic, for this sort of man really thought of popular religion just as he thought of popular circuses. Of him, Professor Fillmore has profoundly said, A great and good man, and he knew it. The heretic Pharaoh had a philosophy more earnest and perhaps more humble. For there is a corollary to the conception of being too proud to fight. It is that the humble have to do most of the fighting. Anyhow, the Egyptian prince was simple enough to take his own philosophy seriously, and alone among such intellectual princes, he effected a sort of coup d'etat, hurling down the high gods of Egypt with one imperial gesture and lifting up for all men like a blazing mirror of monotheistic truth, the disk of the universal sun. He had other interesting ideas often to be found in such idealists. In the sense in which we speak of a little Englander, he was a little Egypter. In art, he was a realist because he was an idealist. For realism is more impossible than any other ideal. But after all, there falls on him something of the shadow of Marcus Aurelius, stalked by the shadow of Professor Fillimore. What is the matter with this noble sort of prince is that he has nowhere quite escaped being something of a prig. Priggishness is so pungent a smell that it clings amid the faded spices even to an Egyptian mummy. What was the matter with the heretic Pharaoh, as with a good many other heretics, was that he probably never paused to ask himself whether there was anything in the popular beliefs and tales of people less educated than himself.
And, as already suggested, there was something in them. There was a real human hunger in all that element of feature and locality, that procession of deities like enormous pet animals, in that unwearied watching at certain haunted spots, in all the mazy wandering of mythology. Nature may not have the name of Isis. Isis may not be really looking for Osiris. But it is true that nature is really looking for something. Nature is always looking for the supernatural. Something much more definite was to satisfy that need. But a dignified monarch with a disc of the sun did not satisfy it. The royal experiment failed amid a roaring reaction of popular superstitions, in which the priests rose on the shoulders of the people and ascended the throne of the kings. The next great example I shall take of the princely sage is Gautama, the great Lord Buddha. I know he is not generally classed merely with the philosophers, but I am more and more convinced, from all information that reaches me, that this is the real interpretation of his immense importance. He was by far the greatest and the best of these intellectuals born in the purple. His reaction was perhaps the noblest and most sincere of all the resultant actions of that combination of thinkers and of thrones. For his reaction was renunciation. Marcus Aurelius was content to say, with a refined irony, that even in a palace life could be lived well. The fierier Egyptian king concluded that it could be lived even better after a palace revolution. But the great Gautama was the only one of them who proved he could really do without his palace. One fell back on toleration, and the other on revolution. But after all, there is something more absolute about abdication. Abdication is perhaps the one really absolute action of an absolute monarch. The Indian prince, reared in oriental luxury and pomp, deliberately went out and lived the life of a beggar. That is magnificent, but it is not war. That is, it is not necessarily a crusade in the Christian sense. It does not decide the question of whether the life of a beggar was the life of a saint or the life of a philosopher. It does not decide whether this great man is really to go into the tub of Diogenes or the cave of St. Jerome. Now those who seem to be nearest to the study of Buddha, and certainly those who write most clearly and intelligently about him, convince me for one that he was simply a philosopher who founded a successful school of philosophy and was turned into a sort of divas, or sacred being, merely by the more mysterious and unscientific atmosphere of all such traditions in Asia. So that it is necessary to say at this point a word about that invisible yet vivid borderline that we cross in passing from the Mediterranean into the mystery of the East. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>